Hello. Well, my new book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation for Intentional Leadership, with contributions from Bradley Madigan, is out now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else you buy books. In this book, I address the 12 leadership areas that I have found leaders need to be the most intentional in to be the type of leader followers actually want to follow. From establishing a foundation of leading teams through managing conflict effectively, all the way through leading teams through change, knowing what to do and why to do it can help readers like you become better leaders in the real. 12 Rules for Leaders is a written continuation of the work I've been practically doing, leveraging the leadership training and development products and services of Leadership Toolbox all the way to leading keys. 12 Rules for Leaders represents a distillation of practical lessons I've learned, absorbed, and transmitted from training and developing 15,000 managers and supervisors over the last 10 years. Reading 12 Rules for Leaders and living it is like getting coaching from me directly without having to pay my full coaching rate. Look, this is a book written for all those leaders, some who call themselves managers and supervisors, who believe that their daily leadership decisions don't matter, or that their hard-won leadership positions are too innocuous and meaningless to matter much in the chaotic world of the now. 12 Rules for Leaders is the confirmation you are looking for that you are the leader for exactly the historical moment happening right now. Head on over to leadershiptoolbox.us and scroll down the homepage. Click on the Buy Now button and purchase in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle format on Amazon 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership. And that's it for me. Out. Hello. My name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 27, with our returning guest for these four episodes around the penultimate nation state papers of the United States, the barrister, Esquire, DeRolo Nixon, Jr. Hi, DeRolo. Good morning, Hey, son. How are you? All right. Well, it's morning where you are. It's afternoon where I am, and it's uh, it's 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 trending towards 113 degrees. Yep, we're at 109. It's gonna be a great day. Uh, I'm waiting for rain. Yeah, we had a we had a we had a cloud burst the other day, and half of my work area just blew away. I won't get into all that. <laughs> but I mean, it hasn't it hasn't rained for like it hasn't rained for like almost ninety days. So like, oh no, it's it's oh, wow. and I'm like, oh, oh it's we have monsoons, so it's rained. Yeah, you know, there's no. Um, there's it's no just here. it stopped. I think about two to three weeks ago. So oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I would kill for a little water right now. Yep. Today we are going to be reading from and dissecting, not the rain, but. Instead, we are going to be reading and dissecting from this book. Now, it says on the front here, The Federalist Papers, uh, but there's a number of other different things in here. This is the Signet Classics version of The Federalist Papers featuring our document, which we are going to be reading and dissecting for leaders today on the podcast, The Constitution of the United States of America, as agreed upon by the convention, September 17th. 1787. 
we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That right there, that opening, that, uh, that beginning uh, sets the stage for the oldest, if I'm not mistaken, and if I am mistaken, I'll be corrected today, but for the oldest uh, federal constitution in the Western world, uh, 240 some odd years old. And just like the Declaration of Independence has molded and shaped and changed, um, not progressed necessarily, but has molded and shaped and changed the people of the United States of America. It is a unique document in that it establishes quite firmly as a follow-on to the Declaration of Independence, which we also covered previously on this podcast. It establishes the relationship between uh, the government and the people. And it establishes the rights, not only of the people, but also of the individual states in which those people live. And it enumerates powers to three branches of the government. And in case you didn't pay attention in civics class, that would be the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. Those are the three branches of the federal government in these United States. Written by ostensibly uh, James Madison, although many, many other folks argued, and we're going to talk about Ben Franklin's little speech that he made today um, before he signed the Declaration of Independence. I'm sorry, not Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution. It is a, uh, it is a collection, uh, as Franklin said and noted, and I agree with him, of the best wisdom you can get while arguing collectively and collaboratively in a room with a bunch of other people who have passions just as strong as yours, who have beliefs just as strong as yours, and who have practical knowledge and a depth of wisdom that is just as deep, if not deeper, than yours. It is probably the best document for governing that human beings have ever created. And yes, I did just say that out loud. I, I, I think you, it stacks up against the, uh, the UN Charter, um, the EU Charter of Rights, and in particular, Pache, Barack Obama, and our friends on the progressive left, yes, it is indeed a document of negative rights. It is about what the government cannot do to you, rather than what the government will do for you. Because, fundamentally, the Founding Fathers knew this, a government that can do everything for you can eventually, ultimately, take everything away from you. Obligations... Right rights, responsibilities, all of this is inside of a document that is deceptively simple, easy to read, which was also the point of the document, but is also the, also represents the collection of the actual practical tactics of how to govern a wild nation that grew overnight from a collection of rump colonies clustered on 
the eastern seaboard of the continental United States all the way to California and even points further north and west. And to talk about all this today, we've got to roll back. So let's start off with that opening. We the people of the United States. Um, people confuse this opening with the opening of the Declaration of Independence because it is rousing and poetic. But they are not the same thing. They're not saying the same thing. Fundamentally, what is the Constitution saying in its, uh, in its preamble that, that differentiates it from the Declaration of Independence? Um, so the, the first thing to note um, is who is speaking, right? Whose voice is this? And so uh, it's we the people. Uh, and so it's not the states. It's not representatives of the states. The voice is supposed to be the voice of the American people. And the framework that the framers established and their point of view, which I think has changed significantly over time, uh, not that they changed it, it's just how it's viewed currently. Um, but the, the point of view was of sovereign individuals um, making these choices and establishing their own government in a way that is virtually impossible to imagine in 2022 ever happening again. Um, states have frankly too much power in 2022 and the on the international scene there is too much legitimacy given to a nation state as an idea in such a way that um, I think if people try to scrap their nation state and do something else um, other nation states would band together and kind of quash that idea yeah I'll pardon, just I'll, I'll burst in here, and I'm going to do this because we're, we're going to kind of flow today. Normally, normally I write a pretty tight script for these podcasts, but today we're going to kind of flow a little bit because the U.S. Constitution sort of doesn't allow you to do that. You try, and it doesn't, it doesn't bend to your will that way. Um, <clears throat> which is good. I, which is good, right? Yeah. Well, it causes. It, it, well, it is the product of debate. It is the product of a debating society. It is the product of a society, not of not of tweeter, not of tweeters or YouTube viewers. It is a, it is a product of a society of deep critical thinkers, and so critical thinking um, in the moment and responding to critical thinking in the moment is something that makes the Constitution an organic document and a living and breathing one, but not like I said necessarily a, a changeable one. Um, in reference to your point here about a nation state collapsing we see this happening and this will kind of place this in a particular context we see a nation state like sri lanka collapsing um and you know collapsing because of various policies that were enacted in order to protect the environment or to prevent environmental degradation uh, uh, that were done to protect the people right um and now the people have had enough and have driven <laughs> last I read anyway, had driven the president out of office. Now, what's interesting is Sri Lanka sits geographically, and there was a reason I bring this up, geographically between India and China. And China has a base there uh, that used to be owned by the United States, and now it's owned by China. 
and that's uh, that creates a strategic military problem. You said that if a nation state collapsed these days, other nation states would jump in and would band in to prevent the individuals from creating a more perfect union. Um, and so I bring up Sri Lanka as an example of the moment where this is happening, but this has happened repeatedly, not even, well, since the, 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 the ratification of the constitution in 1787, there have always been these nation states that have fallen apart. And yet, why do you think now in 2022, it's different. Um, so some of these issues are brought up in the Federalist, but with republics, um, they, in the past, they only worked over limited geographic area. One of the reasons that Madison thought this experiment that he framed as the Constitution would actually work quite well to preserve a republic and preserve liberty was because of the geographic breadth of the United States. At the time, of course, he's referring to the 13 colonies, right? Mm -hmm. um, so all along the Eastern seaboard, but spread out pretty well from uh, the top of New Hampshire down through. Um, and the reason I said top of New Hampshire instead of Maine um, is uh, I can't recall off the top of my head when Maine and Massachusetts split and became two states. And so I'd rather just say the top of New Hampshire, but I haven't forgotten Maine. So top of New Hampshire down to uh, the top of Florida, which was not part of the United States until uh, a fair bit into the uh, 19th century. But anyway, um, the breadth would allow for factions to be dispersed. And at mm -hmm. the time, of course, there wasn't the communications uh, power that we have today. We can now instantaneously communicate throughout the world. Um, and you could add someone, for example, to this podcast and see them on video, and they could be in Sri Lanka right now. We could talk about what's going on. Correct. Uh, at Correct. that time, you know, you didn't have that type of communication ability. You didn't have telegraph yet, let alone telephone, let alone the internet. And therefore, um, for factions to be spread out and thus not able to topple the throne, um, was one of the strengths that he foresaw. And so um, now that's not the case. And so now that type of communications power um, can be used by tyrannies, by arbitrary governments, by people who are fans of the status quo, i.e. the state that just collapsed, rather than notions of sovereign individuals deciding among themselves to elect a certain form of government and give it only limited powers uh, with the design to, that's the things you just read, establish justice all the way down through, you know, promote the general welfare, et cetera, to secure these blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, that uh, such a group of sovereign individuals, I think would be opposed with force um, today, certainly in many parts of the world and arguably in many parts of the West. Um, so, yeah. Is this a, <clears throat> well, there's one of the reasons why we do this podcast, right? We, we seek to, oh, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a little bit, whatever here. I'm going to say we seek to preserve the best things of the West, right? The mm -hmm. best writing of the West, the best literature of the West, the best thoughts of the West. Now, the West 
And clearly, I mean, we read Asian literature on this podcast. We're going to be reading African literature. We're we're reading, uh, and we're going to be reading um, Russian. We've read Russian literature on this podcast. But there's a concept, a Judeo-Christian ethic that lays underneath the West, right? And that ethic is embedded in the nation state it's embedded in the declaration of independence most most uh you know sort of overtly but it's even embedded in here in the separation of powers in the constitution um this idea of uh, which is again a christian idea the father the son and the holy spirit right uh the, the, the triune entity right three and one very hard concept for non-religious or secular people to understand um, or even people of other religions to understand and accept. Um, <clears throat> Islam claims that that's idol worship, and Judaism claims that it's just foolishness. <laughs> but the Constitution is a curious document in which both the, uh, the dismissive Muslim and the incredulous Jew can both uh, come and live under a system that is governed by a constitution and can uh, experience justice, experience domestic tranquility, um, participate in the common defense, um, grow businesses in order to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty, regardless of whether or not they think a triune idea is foolish or idolatrous. Mm-hmm. 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 And they can even participate in the functioning of the government without any kind of penalty because the Constitution itself has, you know, in one of the articles that we read um, says that there will be no um, religious test to hold office. And so um, they foresaw that issue. But of course, that that was something that, you know, Great Britain had wrestled through and was still wrestling through at the time and wouldn't actually fix even in Britain itself until, if I'm not mistaken, around 1827. Um, it's called Catholic emancipation, um, mm-hmm. but uh, and that was just the UK. So right. the restraints on Catholics in public life in Ireland, which at that time, that entire Ireland, that entire island, excuse me, was under British rule um, arbitrarily. Um, and so uh, Catholics, the, the majority of you know the Irish population being Catholic then and now, uh, we're barred from office. We're barred from other things as well. Uh, the legal profession is one of the, the uh, one of the areas of public or quasi-public life that were barred, you know, to Catholics. And so that those restrictions came off later. But anyway, um, the framers solved that issue out of the gate. Right. For those of us who are listening, who are more secular in our thinking. <clears throat> One of the one of the critiques of the Constitution, yes, there's no religious test per se for office, but the sense that even the irreligious have that there is something religious going on in this document irks them. They find it to be irksome, and they cannot attach uh, successfully religious language to that irksomeness. They just they're just irked by it, or they don't know why. Why did religion matter to? 18th century framers why was that important um why did it well, matter it depends on i think it depends on how you know the degree to which you wish to attribute to them um religious ideas or not and what i mean is you know you had you know um most of them belonged to mainline denominations um they had a re- regularly uh well 
a pretty readily known liturgy and how they went through service. Okay. And you had, you know, public prayers and things like that. So, you know, that's one set of circumstances to look at. Then there's the private life and more importantly, the mind and what was going on in the minds of the framers and how does one access that? The closest thing we have to that, of course, are uh, their correspondence. And so the letters of many of the framers or founders, such as you know Thomas Jefferson, a founder and not a framer, um, you know, have been examined and poured over. And of course, um, Jefferson has the, and he wouldn't call it dubious, he would be proud of it. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the phrase, the separation of church and state can be attributed to a private letter of Thomas Jefferson. It does not find any place in either the Declaration of Independence or the US Constitution. And further, the person who said that was not a framer of the Constitution. Correct, right. But his phrase has been taken up and people have run with it. Um, anyway, um, the private correspondence of the framers um, and then the other founders uh, helped show what they thought, okay? And one of the greatest fears they had, be he George Washington, be he John Adams, uh, two different states, two different personalities, okay, was uh, basically anarchy and mob rule. Mm -hmm. They wanted order, and uh, they want, arguably, they wanted order first, and they saw order as a product of morality, and morality they knew came from religion. So it sets up a kind of logic progression where you give people religion they get morality with morality we can have order and then we can have liberty and it not um we not be on a wooden naval vessel trying to cultivate termites who are then going to destroy the ship and we're all going to drown um, <laughs> right yeah <laughs> they worried about those things and they yeah. wrote about those concerns to each other um, and we can read those letters today. Um, and we will read those letters, by the way. We'll read the Federalist Papers and we'll read the Anti-Federalist Papers uh, in a couple of upcoming podcast uh, episodes. <clears throat> there he is. William J. Bennett. Uh, I was looking in my office for where the book was. He has a book, a book now titled The Spirit of America, but mm -hmm. he has preserved many of these books. Well, the letters have been preserved. He has brought together uh, successfully many of these letters, and they discuss, you know, some of the issues we're talking about. Um, and it's it's fascinating reading because um, these men and women wrote well, and uh, were frank in their discourse about uh, many of the issues that still, um, you know, capture the attention of their fellow Americans. You know, um, one of the things that the Constitution did not do is resolve the problem of faction or which really just means political divisions right um but uh that problem wasn't solved and um arguably it isn't a problem that can be solved it is something as you know madison said in the federalist um you know it it, it can't be solved it's something that uh is endemic to human society and so um because of that, I do not fault the framers that, you know, 235 years after the Constitution was signed, uh, which is where we are today, um, or will be, excuse me, on September 17th, 
uh, God willing, that's where we'll be. Um, that some of the issues they were talking about were still dealing with. Uh, some of what they wrestled with were still were still dealing with, and other things that they wrestled with, we are not dealing with. Right. Okay? right. Um, we are not dealing with slavery like they were. We are not dealing with. Um, we're not dealing with these calcified um, parts of the British Constitution, small c, um, that they were worried about. And so, and there's, you know, passages in, um, in Article 2, uh, and I think also in Article 1, where they're, you know, you, you read some of these things and you say, what the heck is that? Well, <laughs> one of the reasons we can say that is because they were successful in framing a system of government that did not do the things that happened in the British Constitution for good or for ill, you know, to the British people. So, um, but it does make for some interesting reading. My favorite one, of course. Um, well, let's let's has got to be. Well, we'll, we'll come across <laughs> it. You'll know which yeah, one yeah, it is. Yeah. I'll, I'll know which one it smile is. My face, and I'll point it out. But yeah. <clears> there's <throat> definitely one where I'm like, yeah, that's called. Uh, that's some old British thing. What the heck are they worried about? No. Well, they, well, let's let's actually see what they were worried about. Let's dive into the Constitution. So let's start with Article One, Section One. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. Section two, the House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. And the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he or she shall be chosen. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound in service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States, and within every subsequent term of ten years, in such manner as they shall by law direct. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative, and until such enumeration shall be made, the state of New Hampshire shall be entitled to choose three, Massachusetts eight, Rhode Island and Providence plantations one, Connecticut five, New York six, New Jersey four, Pennsylvania eight, Delaware one, Maryland six, Virginia 10, North Carolina five, South Carolina five, and Georgia three. When vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. Now, let's stop there because there's a ton in there that uh, that really does matter. And uh, <laughs> let's start off with the notorious three-fifths clause. Which, um, 
don't want to give the 16. Oh, can we, sorry. Can we start with the first, uh, the first clause? Um, you want to start with the first clause? Sure. We can yes. start with the first clause. Yeah. Okay, sure. Let's start with the first clause. The house of representatives shall be composed of the members chosen every second year by the people. No, it's the, the second clause. The first clause. Oh, you want the first clause? All legislative yeah. powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a house of representatives. Sure. Let's start Thank with that. You. Yes. The reason I wanted to is there was a recent decision, West Virginia v. EPA, in which yes. the Supreme Court, okay, upheld mm -hmm. the very first clause in the Constitution. It's the actual document rather than the preamble, namely that Congress, Congress alone makes the laws. Now, okay. why is that important? I've been explaining to people West Virginia versus EPA. Um, because people don't understand it, because people don't read the Constitution. So why don't we flesh that out a little bit for folks? Why was West Virginia versus EPA such an important decision? And how is that going decision going to impact the destruction or the furtherance of the administrative state, which was not described in the Constitution, which Mark Levine and others have described as a, as a slinking fourth branch of government? Correct. Um... So for sovereign individuals who have organized their government as a republic, um, that requires uh, both representatives rather than each individual voter um, forming as a body, making laws, and then being accountable to those voters for the laws that they pass or make. And what we had instead developing over time, and part of it is because of the complexity of government, I get it, but it doesn't mean that uh, it's right or constitutional. But anyway, what had been developing over you know several years were certain um, executive administrative agencies like the FDA, like the CDC, like the EPA began to publish or promulgate rules ostensibly under an act of Congress that were so widespread and sweeping in terms of how they reorganized how the sovereign individuals lived their lives and conducted business that arguably it was not a rule. It was not an administrative rule. It was really a law and it needed to come out of Congress. In other words, people elected to make the laws should have made the laws and not somebody who is unelected, unknown in some office tucked away on whatever street, Street L, who knows, in Washington, D.C., someone you will never see or hear or hear from other than, well, here's this rule that now says, for example, you can't smoke tobacco at all. Oh, okay. Well, where the heck did that come from? When did Congress pass that? Because the smoker might want to vote for somebody else, but the smoker can't vote for the bureaucrat he or she never sees who then produced this rule in quotation marks and so this is about accountability fundamentally correct correct, correct. And, and about and about respect right um when you respect the voters you state this is what i'm going to do and then you do it and then you let them either say we agree or you let them cashier you um and that can't be done where you're unelected and so where the constitution is restricted to unelected persons is all, it's all under Article 3. And so those officers of the state um, are not elected and they're not supposed to be. But they even they there's even accountability for them. Um, you know, uh, they have to have, you know, good behavior. 
Um, and of course, where people will challenge what they do on constitutional grounds, they have to figure out some way of claiming that it's not good behavior. And so I don't know what the substance of what um, New York Congresswoman uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has said, I have just seen the headlines where she's calling for the Supreme Court to go. And it's just like, okay, um, but it's, wh whose behavior was bad? Um, which, which of these members? Because we don't want to create, uh, certainly the, the, the framers did not create and the founders did not anticipate creating a system where um, if you don't like what they decide, you just throw them out. That That's not really how it works. And they knew that um, passion and faction would drive that way. And they framed this system um, to prevent that from being able to shipwreck the whole. So I thought it was important to highlight that the very first clause says, this is who makes the laws, not the president, not some office that the president can legitimately create under the constitution. They don't mm -hmm. make laws. Their job is to carry into effect uh, the laws of the United States uh, of America and not to create those laws themselves. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, because one last reference and I'll stop. Yeah, um, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, this week, today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, President Biden signed uh, so-called bipartisan uh, gun regulation into law. Um, but last week, if I'm not mistaken, he was signing an executive order that relates to something having to do with restricting people's gun rights. And so it's fascinating because um, that also not challenged under West Virginia VEPA, but that also is a similar mechanism to make law that is not legislation coming out of Congress and thus is not in compliance or conformity with Article One. Um, and so writing regulations to regulate how the executive branch does things is certainly within the president's power. He's the head of the executive branch. That's his article two. Uh, that's what it's about. Um, but uh, from what I have seen, it does not sound like that uh, is the intention behind, oh, we need to do something. Oh, okay. But now it doesn't sound like you're trying to do something that only applies to what is it within your administrative bailiwick, as it were? It sounds like you're trying to legislate. That's what it sounds like. And so maybe they will challenge that as well. I would welcome such a challenge because well, when, that when, also needs to be roped in. Well, and when factions <laughs> running around like Karens with their hairs, hair on fire, screaming, won't someone do something? And then something does get done. The something that typically gets done is not something that matches with the Constitution because the Constitution is not a document that is designed for in a panic, in a reactive mode, someone to, quote unquote, do something. It is designed instead for deliberation, for moral behavior, for slow movement. It is All designed speed. Right. It is designed for scleroticism. It's designed to be a, a is designed to create a system that does the least possible stuff in the longest possible time. It is indeed a, uh, a feature, not a bug. And I worry that 
individuals of our time who expect human nature to change at the speed of a tweet um, will eventually get enough representatives in the House of Representatives to be able to change the document so that it becomes more positive and moves faster. And of course, this is the lament of many on the progressive left. Uh, that faction of the progressive left is that it does not move fast enough. Uh, this was the lament of folks like Woodrow Wilson, uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, and other individuals who sought to engage in what I think the founding fathers would call uh, <laughs> noble or king-like behavior um, in an effort to appease the peoples. And, and that doesn't work. Now, an example of the slow-moving nature of the Constitution is this three-fifths clause. And uh, this has been used to whack the United States over the head <laughs> um, in, 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 in walking hand-in-hand hand with our original sin of slavery, most notably and most recently by the 1619 Project and the, the purveyors of those ideas that are over there, that the U.S. founding somehow wasn't in 1787. The U.S. founding was somehow not based on truth. Instead, the U.S. founding was based on a lie. Uh, this is the Howard Zinn view of the world, uh, was based on a lie uh, to help rich white people stay rich and stay white with their property, hold everybody else down, including black chattel individuals, and to maintain slavery um, for 400 years on the North American continent. And it doesn't matter, by the way, this is where that thinking ends, it doesn't matter that a horrific civil war was fought, the sin still needs to be repaid. Expiated. expiated that's right and it can never fully be expiated because well there is no god there's only the earth and you can never fully expiate on the earth but anyway uh i'll just fill in the blank on your thought there for you <laughs> so for people who don't know what i just said there because i said a bunch of word salad there that you know I, you know what i said i know what i said um and maybe a few of our really sharp uh listeners and, and subscribers and downloaders know what i said but for the rest of us who had no clue what i just said there what is the three-fifths clause why does it matter and why was it has it been used to, to whack the United States over the head for the last, you know, 235 years? Well, part of the problem with uh, representation um, is that not all states had the same population, right? Um, and part of the solution was to divide the legislature into two parts and then have one part... Um, constituted by popular representation so that a populous state like Virginia, the most populous state at the time, would have more representatives than a state like New Hampshire or the plantations, I think they called it, of Rhode Island or something is really, Rhode Island and Providence plantations or something like that, which would not have very many at all. Um, but on the other side, to have a, a, a house within Congress where representation was equal. And this would balance out the inequity, um, not to say the inequality, the inequity of having more people in one place than another. However, the issue of slavery created a problem because would enslaved individuals or should enslaved individuals have been counted as persons for purposes of representation when among other corollaries, um, they weren't going to be able to vote. There's the whole dignity route. I'm, I'm skipping that door for the moment. 
um, but they wouldn't be able to vote should they be counted in this process. Um, and voting was referenced directly when Native Americans were referred to, right? Uh, Non-voting Indian tribes, right? Right. Um, but there's no mention of votes and slaves. But the point was, how do we arrive at a way of counting persons, right? Um, without, on the one hand, excluding entirely persons who are enslaved because that's not what Virginia would have wanted, right? But without giving them one-to-one a one-to-one -one count, right? One person, one vote, which we eventually got to. So one person, one person for purposes of this, you know, uh, of counting how many people and thus how many representatives a state should have. That's not what Massachusetts would have wanted, right? They had far fewer slaves, if any. And so at that time, if any. Um, and I learned from one of Professor David Hackett Fisher's books that uh, that wasn't necessarily due to a superior morality in New England. Uh, the climate at the time was particularly hostile to Africans coming in because they had not been exposed to inclement weather like that for, you know, long periods of time. And thus, when those colonies were founded in the 17th century and grew, uh, people tried slavery, didn't really take off. In contrast, it was the complete opposite in Virginia. In Virginia in the 16th, sorry, uh, in the, certainly in the 16th because of just one colony then, but in the 17th century and the 18th centuries, uh, in the beginning, um, especially around the James River, it was white people who were dying because they came from Europe and were not accustomed to the malaria and other types of tropical diseases that for Africans, this happened every day was normal, meaning the genetics had grown to deal with it. And so they weren't dying, but were multiplying. And so ironically, uh, Virginia was well suited for black growth as were the Carolinas. Uh, and of course that's where my families are from. So anyway, um, yeah. So this was a way, this was a compromise so that there was not the complete removal of um, enslaved persons who weren't going to vote for the counting, but not counting one for one because, uh, you know, compromise is what politics is about, uh, which, you know, is that, that, that axiom is one of the banes of conservatives, right? Because conservatives don't want to do that. And of course, they're progressives who also don't want to do that. But that's relatively recent, I would say, over the last 40 years. Um, anyway, uh, but not for conservatives. Uh, the people who take to the hills with guns don't want to compromise. <laughs> and so uh, compromise is how politics works. So um, this was a compromise, a compromise that allowed the whole project to go forward. You can see from the end of the Constitution, the main body, not the amendments, um, that it was approved unanimously by the convention. Well, there were, I, I did the first person who signed it was a slave owner from Virginia named George Washington. So um, for him and others to sign on, I believe, uh, one of the things that was necessary was this compromise. And so, um, that that's my take on it. Well, and, and, and the founding fathers, I want to be very clear about this. The founding fathers are very, very, again, religious, even if not believing. I mean, Thomas Jefferson cut out the parts of the Bible that he thought weren't appropriate and made his own Bible. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but he, he knew enough to know where to cut 
and this is the thing that I want to get across to, to our secular atheist listeners, the, the, the very founding of the country itself that has allowed the development of the luxury of secular atheism, and it is a luxury to believe it, to claim to believe in nothing, that's a luxury. The, the very founding of the country that has allowed this luxury to grow over the course of time and the freedom to engage around this luxury without fear of loss of life, limb, or property uh, came out of a series of compromises, a series of best compromises at the time. And one of the main critiques, one of the main pushbacks against the Constitution is that the compromises that were made in the past don't represent fully the needs of individuals in the present, nor do they fully meet the needs of or represent or can possibly, uh, can possibly address potential future compromises that may pop up tomorrow. But I would push back and I would say that the, the founding fathers understood that the compromises that they were making were not about technology or about communication or about material things. They were making compromises instead about much higher order things that are not going to be changing in the next hundred years as long as human beings still have hearts where envy and tyranny and jealousy and greed still run rampant. Mm -hmm. Back to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 3. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Immediately after they shall be assembled in consequence of the first election, they shall be divided as equally as may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one-third may be chosen every second year, and if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive thereof may make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies." No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of the state for which he shall be chosen. The vice president of the United States shall be president of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The Senate shall choose their other officers, and also a president pro tempore, in the absence of the vice president, or when he shall exercise the office of the president of the United States. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. There have been three impeachment attempts in the last 235 years. Uh, that would be Nixon, uh, Clinton, and your friend and mine, Donald J. Trump. There has been only one successful impeachment, 
Um, and that was Andrew Jackson, or not Andrew Jackson. Um, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson. Thank you, not Jackson Johnson. Andrew Johnson back in the day. That last part there. <laughs> Is that why presidents resign? Or in the case of Donald Trump, you, he knew he wasn't two thirds of the senators weren't going to vote to make the thing go forward. Is it really that last part? Because when I was reading this, it occurred to me that that idea of judgment, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and the disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Okay, that's an interesting, that's an interesting penalty. Mm-hmm. And then you have a colon there, not a semicolon, interestingly enough. You have a colon there. But the party convicted shall nevertheless, that's interesting, be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Mm-hmm. Is this why Nixon from the left, Clinton from the right, and now Trump from the left are constantly being chased around the block? Is it a misreading of what's actually going on in Section 3? Because without the actual impeachment itself going through, mm-hmm. this individual can do whatever it is that they would like to do on the back end of holding office, including potentially run for office again. Is that a misreading of the Constitution or is that an accurate reading of the Constitution? I think that's an accurate reading. Um, It's interesting, though, because uh, the effect of um, the conviction is basically to the, the effect of someone being convicted of one of the articles for which they were impeached, convicted in the Senate, um, means that they're removed from office. But it's as if there's a mantle that is stripped from them. And now they have returned to being a private citizen and thus would be liable in a normal court for a crime that he or she may have committed and hopefully did commit because they were just convicted of, you know, on on articles of impeachment for it. So um, it it is designed to have stages and you're correct. If the, um, the one element if it's removed, that makes the whole thing collapse is the conviction in the Senate. So um, Johnson, uh, I'm pretty certain that um, when it came down to a vote, he was actually spared by one. Um, just going to make sure. <clears throat> so... Um, one vote short of the two thirds majority. Um, and talk about I, a close talk about a close run. Talk about a close run thing. Yes, it was a close run thing that he wasn't running because he was. That was that, that was not his issue. Um, he had issues. That was not one. Um, uh, well, he had strengths. That was not one. Uh, that no, if he had run his ship more closely, he probably would not have been impeached. But who am I to to judge? Uh, my name is Nixon. Who am I to judge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I cannot pass up that joke. So uh, it just but, it hangs uh, out there. It's just you know it's it's really hard uh, convicting people in the Senate is really hard. It's done on purpose because basically the types of things you're supposed to be impeached for uh, are huge. Mm-hmm. 
and um, they're not supposed to be political. They're supposed to be legal, like treason, you know, not like you don't like what I've been doing. Right, or right. even, you know, the emoluments like clause. Oh, you right. violated the emoluments clause. Oh, okay. Well, disgorge, <sighs> right. maybe, but not impeach, convict, and remove from office. One of the things that the framers were trying to protect is the right of sovereign individuals to decide, you know, who were going to be their government officers for the democratically elected officers. I say that because at the time, of course, uh, choosing the president was not one. Uh, you can argue that it's still not one. Um, but at, back then, it certainly was not one. So um, they were preserving the right of uh, the sovereign individuals to choose their elected officials. The elected officials to then choose, you know, who was going to be. Um, let me. I take that back. Uh, it's direct election of senators. So, right. um, which of course was subject to an amendment, but. Basically, they were preserving the right of sovereign people to choose the elected, uh, the democratically elected officers, and then those people to choose the others, right? And then the system to basically function. And internally, they needed a mechanism to throw out people where uh, their conduct just wasn't fit. Um, They were just highly specific, with one exception, I would say. And they still dealt with it because of the majority, but they were highly specific about um, what was required, how the removal then had to happen, and then the consequences. Okay, that passage I was referring to, and I have notes on it, so I was able to find it. It's in Article Three, Section Two, mm-hmm. um, and it's about you know what happens with you know treason. How far does the taint run? And so it's fascinating to read this hoary, H-O-R-Y, expression and to say, oh, the heck are you talking about? You know, actually, I'll go ahead. I will go ahead and read for the purposes of of clarity for those who are listening. Let's go to the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction to controversies to which the United States shall be a party to controversies between two or more States between a state and citizens of another state between citizens of different States between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants to different states and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions, and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. So I was missing a squiggle on my note. I apologize. It's in section three. <laughs> Well, it's we'll the set up last section three. Paragraph of section <laughs> well, three. then let's I'm set up. Let, let, let's continue to section three. Then, Article yeah. Three, Section Three. 
back to the Constitution. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. By the way, that's very biblical. See Matthew for that. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attainted. I didn't even mark that because I was like, I don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> That's the point where it's just like, what? It What? Cor what? Is this some kind of disease? <laughs> Corrupter of or blood COVID? What are you talking about? What? What the heck? And it's interesting because the lawyer Madison well-placed commas because after corruption of the blood there's a comma and that comma is necessary because the forfeiture was the thing that was only during lifetime the corruption of the blood was not at all and that's what that comma means so the next time you read a paragraph read a contract and you see a clause where there's not a comma there don't insert one in your mind because it allows for the two ideas to remain joined rather than perhaps a partial joining or where cl clause one and clause two go together with respect to verb three, you know, but not necessarily in the same way. And this is an example. Um, what they were referring to, of course, was um, they were referring to these hoary things from H-O-R-Y, from the British constitution, namely um, someone convicted of treason would lose his property uh, and in a system where property was basically king and you had primogeniture, um, that defeating would work itself to the descendants, okay? The family suffered, not just the individual. And so corruption of the blood is a reference to the family suffering because of one person's wrong. Got and it. one of the glories of our system is the notion that it is an individual who acts and it is an, an individual who will be judged for his or her acts and not the individual spouse, children, grandchildren, what have you. Here's an interesting cross-reference I didn't think about, but patent of nobility, right? And they use title here, title of nobility, a patent of nobility, um, and even an honorarium while you're a sitting, functioning member of the government of the United States, those are also prohibited. And so it works both ways, where they're trying to protect the principle that it is an individual who stands or falls, and we will not damn his whole family because he's a crook. It's just him. Well, and that's very biblical, too. I mean, that comes out of the Old Testament, this idea that this Judaic, this Judaic idea that every individual will pay for his own crimes. There's no such thing as collective uh, guilt, just as there's no such thing as collective salvation. Everyone must stand on his or her own two feet before the judgment seat or the Bema seat, if you're a believer, uh, in, uh, of Christ, right? That idea, again, comes down into the Constitution, which is where I get back to, again, the framing of this document may not have been overtly religious on its face, but religious ideas infect this document. They, uh, they run through it. They are rife within it, which makes it, um, I believe it was Madison who said this, 
uh, makes it worth worthwhile only for what was it, a religious and moral people. It will work for no other. Um, <laughs> which gets to which gets to the idea that um, that you were merely that you were saying there about treason, and you know treason is illegal. It is a legal act, not a political one. Political acts are acts, not acts. Political disputations, political disagreements. Those are about an individual's, or maybe about besmirching of an individual's character. And if you go back and look what the founding fathers actually said about each other when they were running for president against each other, they were vicious to each other. The kinds of things they would say. Um, as a matter of fact, Reason Magazine actually took a bunch of the old school, um, old school political pamphlets from back in the day <laughs> and they made like they updated them to make them like modern political ads <laughs> and then like thomas jefferson and i approved this message <laughs> and the things these people said about each other <laughs> was unbelievable we are polite compared to them like they would say you know if madison gets to be president you know he's going to make sure that all your daughters have relations with pigs and, you know, if Jefferson gets elected, he's going to make sure that all of your daughters wind up with their skirts upside down on top of their heads twerking in the street. Now, these were but these were political disagreements. And so the kinds of things that the media over the course of the last 40 years has promulgated against various politicians of various camps of various factions, such as it were, are pale in comparison to what these individual politicians said about each other, or these individual men said about each other, behaving in political, behaving in a political fashion, and then the other dynamic you have here in the Constitution is that the Constitution allowed for the expansion of the franchise, so black people, right, um, free from slavery, now could become part of the franchise. Indians uh, <laughs> could become part of the franchise. Uh, women by by dint of a constitutional amendment could become part of the franchise as the franchise expands the opportunities for factions to politically engage in character assassination which is my whole point here and to confuse such character assassination with treason expand as well which is why it is such a narrow bridge mm -hmm. and rightfully so um they made it hard to get rid of people for yeah, just because you don't right, you know? just you don't like the way that Clinton just because you don't why like have the way a constitution. Clinton, well, just because you, you don't like you the way can the get Bill, rid of people for political reasons, why have a constitution? At all? Right. right, just because you don't like the way Bill Clinton plays, you know, the saxophone on Arsenio Hall doesn't mean you get to get rid of him. Right. Just because you don't like the way he twirls his cigar doesn't mean you get to get rid of him. And right. by the way, let's update this. Just because you don't like Donald Trump's comb over doesn't mean you get to get rid of him. So this idea, I love this idea that's, that's, that's been promulgated in the last few years of this idea of the erosion of democratic norms and that has been laid at the foot of the Constitution. No, democratic norms, quote unquote, don't have anything to do with the document itself. Mm. They have to do with other things. The document is fine. It is the people who have changed. Well, not really. Correct. The people have become the, more of themselves, actually. The people, they, I think the people have changed. I don't think the people's nature has changed. I just think the amount of people holding certain views, the how those stack up 
has changed. But just to go back and also to add from the other perspective, because it's not only uh, progressives who want to get rid of duly elected people because they don't like what they are saying or doing, but just because you think he is senile does not mean you can get rid of him. If he is actually incapable of carrying out the office, there's a provision for that. There is. There's more than one, actually, um, because they foresaw that need. Um, the trick, you know, the trick, the trickiest bit is exercising judgment over that circumstance because it, it is it is almost a sacred thing in our constitutional system to respect what the voters have chosen to do. Yep. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that citizenship matters. It's one of the reasons why you know, a blanket amnesty that grants to millions of people who may not even know 10 words in the U.S. Constitution, citizenship, uh, would work a grave wrong to our constitutional system. And that does not mean that I want them um, starving, being harassed by drug gangs, or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that citizenship matters. It means something. And there's a process and a system that people need to understand um, before they're granted these August uh, powers to then, you know, uh, choose their governors. Well, you have to understand the rules of the game, right? Before you can actually fully commit to playing it. Right. You know, you, among you, other things, among well, other things. Well, well, I'll go even a step further than that. You have to understand the rules of the game before you can start playing the game. You even have to understand the rules of the game before you can begin to fully appreciate the spoils or the consequences, positive and, and negative, of the game you're in. Because otherwise, the game, the nation state, and you, you opened up our, our podcast today talking about how the nation state has gotten to be, has become more... Uh, more important over the course of the last 235 years than perhaps has been elevated higher among higher than the individual over the course of the last 235 years than perhaps it should have been in your opinion and <clears throat> i agree with that because that serves and the reason i agree with that is because not knowing the rules of the nation state means that you can be Yep. cajoled into soft neo-feudalism mm -hmm. which is something that i'm concerned about at a global level <laughs> and and soft neo-feudalism fundamentally doesn't work in a nation state with a constitution like the united states of america right going back to the constitution for just a second Article, I'm going to jump backward here. Article 1, something I want to talk about here. I'm going to talk about taxation a little bit and the role of Congress. <clears throat> you know, that do-nothing Congress. Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes. Not the Federal Reserve, not the IRS. Uh, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and exercises, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. 
to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. By the way, that's the Commerce Clause that you may be hearing very much about, which you probably don't hear much about, but it is very important, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uh, uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States, by the way, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. That is where calls for Congress to engage in immigration reform come from. And when Congress refuses to do such, well, there you go. To coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin, and to fix the standard of weights and measures. To provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. To establish post offices and post roads. To promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. By the way, that's trademark and copyright law. To constitute tri tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, that's your federal district courts, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations. This one's important, Article 1, Section 8, to declare war, grant letters of marquee and reprisal and make rules concerning captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for longer a term than two years. To provide and maintain a navy. To make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. To provide for calling forth the militia. To execute the laws of the Union. Suppress insurrections and repel invasions. To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. And for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. Reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. This is what runs the National Guard, by the way. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such a district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may be by session of, a, of particular states, and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased uh, by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. And... To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all the other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or any or in any department or office thereof. How is it that modern Congress can't get anything done? Uh, well, maybe they're just too busy with the wrong things, <laughs> Ash, you know, committee after committee after committee. But, you know, even if we back up, you know, several years, um, I just think they have infection. They haven't functioned as an effectively as a lawmaking body. It seems like for quite some time. Um, oh, I would go they're, they're there to hold power. They're there to distribute, you know, um, what is the word? slipping my mind but like not the fruits of office um it, it's another word would be as p it will come to me in a second but anyway um that's how they seem to function we're here we can control this power and we can do certain things but the notion of them being a lawmaking body uh and and principally a lawmaking body uh it, it's interesting because they seem to have drifted um into some new space where they're not really functioning um, with the mechanics of lawmaking. I, I think the the real shift occurred um, 
with uh, under the Roosevelt administration when the New Deal state was created, because that's what we're still dealing with. We're still dealing with, um, you know, the modern welfare state was created by FDR. Um, was created by FDR in response to a set of circumstances that arguably our nation hadn't been through before. Um, but uh, it was a brilliant innovation in the sense that we're still dealing with it. Um, we have not contracted back to a small manageable state that someone can just stick in his or her pocket anymore. Um, that, And I'm not saying that we should contract to it, but I note that we cannot is how it appears to be to me in my judgment. And so... Uh, that innovation, to me, uh, functioned not necessarily as a catalyst, but that, to me, set the motion for Congress drifting away from being a lawmaking body. It, it, to put it slightly differently, there's too much that the U.S. government is doing in too many areas for, um, you know, 435 members or whatever it is to meet on a regular enough basis. And you notice from the constitution that it wasn't like they were meeting every day. <laughs> the no. minimum was like December once or whenever, yeah. uh, but to literally sit and make laws across this huge swath of areas and industries is impossible. It is burdensome uh, more perhaps than, or maybe not, but it is burdensome in a way that it makes me think of, of the prophet Moses's burden because that was specifically mentioned that no, the way you're going about this doesn't make sense. You're too burdened. You need to delegate. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways that Congress can delegate within itself and still get its job done. Um, you know, but that, that they've certainly drifted from their role in ways that, um, well, actually let me back up. I think all three branches have drifted from their roles in ways that, you know, that, should cause patriots to pause and consider, you know, what is going on. When you think about that drift, um, it, the dynamic of that drift, I, I, I'm curious. Um, if, if a Congress who drifts and does nothing because it's too complicated, is that more dangerous or less dangerous than a Congress that seeks to keep its hand on the wheel all the time, but only in these very narrow band of things? Which one is more damaging to the Republic? Fundamentally, I think, at the, I think the, the former. Because okay. at least you know who to blame in the latter circumstance, and you also understand what the stakes are. You know, right. we're okay. sending somebody to Washington, and what she's going to do is to make laws that impact us. Here are the the limited areas in which she's going to do that. She's going to do it in concert with other people from our state and from other states. Okay, and if we agree with what she's doing, wonderful. And if we don't, we're going to cashier her and put somebody else in in in, in place. That it limits the the number of people responsible to a manageable number. And they're known versus sending someone into an abyss and not knowing what is going to come out and who did what um, is not uh, that that is something that puts liberty in danger. And this is the fundamental tension, right? Because I'm going to take up the opposing side of this. 
Um, the world is complicated now, and we do maybe need more laws and regulations um, in order to manage the complication. Uh, take, for instance, something like net neutrality. We need a law because the internet is the Wild West, there are many bad actors, there's abuse, <clears throat> there's behavioral AI, um, there's uh, school shooters, um, there's uh, uh, mental health issues, there's cyber cybernetic attacks that are occurring. The founding fathers and the constitution never could have imagined that when they set up a system, we would eventually wind up in a place where free speech would be corrosive and damaging to the body politic and Congress needs to resolve this problem. And yet every time net neutrality goes into committee, I'm taking up the opposing side, Every time net neutrality goes into a committee, it dies in committee and never makes it to the floor. And because it dies in committee and never makes it to the floor, this is the sign of a do-nothing Congress. And I agree with you. Uh, the individuals are doing nothing because they are bought and paid for by Comcast and these giant corporations, which would prefer to not have net neutrality and thus kill it in committee, strangling the thing in its cradle that 330 million people are crying out for. They are crying out for management of these corrosive systems that we have built, and it is only government that can save us from the corporations. How dare these congressmen stand, and congresswomen, stand in the way of the American people being saved from the, saved from the corporation's perfidy? How dare they do that? And the Constitution is a problem, so we need to change it. Or we need to or we need to tax those corporations out of existence. We need to make the Internet free for everyone. Oh, yeah. Because the Founding Fathers could never have anticipated this. Well, some of them had incredible foresight. Um, foresight to uh, what? They could have anticipated the World Wide Web. They could never have imagined telecommunications beyond all belief. They had incredible foresight into what? I don't care about the human heart. I'm taking the opposite side. I don't believe that has any relevance here in this conversation. What has relevance is the, the, the attainment of power by these massive organizations and government is the only tool that we have representative, representative, represented by our Congress people who are a check on this overweening and gigantic power. And how dare you not be a person who wants to help us check this power? Okay, so then I would counter with um the words of those phantom progressives since this is um i'm standing in the gap i'm standing in the gap i'm standing in the gap for them yes <laughs> but i would counter with their own words when um the actions of the government go against not just what they want but what they view to be sacred because then it's not we need more government it's they want blood <laughs> and so the shoe is on the other foot when the government is not only not doing what you want, but is expressly doing what you despise. All of a sudden, government is not the savior. So government solutions to rioting is shoot rioters. All of a sudden, oh, now we need a commission about about what? 
You said well, about you gun violence. You said government was the solution. About the Second Amendment. We, we need private, a commission about the Second problem. Amendment. We need to get you rid know? of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is the problem. That is the thing we need to get rid of. <laughs> because without the Second Amendment, these 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 rioters would never have had guns, and thus we would never have had to brought out the militias, and the militias would never have had to shoot people. Haven't you seen it operate in other countries where these rioters only throw rocks? And yes, rioters get shot, but it is far fewer rioters than you would ever see get shot in America. And don't you know that the rate of rioters in America getting shot last year was four times more than any other, I mean, you can see where I'm going with this, any other country in the world, and it is constitutionally a problem that the rioters have access to guns. Why don't you do something? Why, don't the, why doesn't Congress do something? Why doesn't Congress change the Constitution to limit the amount of access that rioters have to these weapons that are military grade? Uh, because they can't. They don't have the power to, thankfully. Um, I mean, we just went through a holiday that literally exists because men with guns said, sorry, government, but you're out of here. But what about the Highland Park shooting? There were there was a person with a with a high powered rifle that shot a bunch of people. How can you look at that in the face and say we cannot solve our gun violence problem? How is it always never the guns problem? It's always these other problems. Um. So there's a net. Well. I, I deplore the shooting, of course, and my heart goes out to any family that has to deal with that kind of tragedy. Mm -hmm. Being a husband and a father, it's something that uh, there's a weight to it that wasn't there before becoming a husband and a father. Be that as it may, um, there, there are two lenses through which I wish to look at that situation and the response that it's called for. The first is... Um, the analogous situations in which no one is claiming that the tool or the implement needs to be removed. Um, there are vehicular accidents that kill many people every day in our country, and no one is arguing that vehicles need to be removed wholesale. Um, there are other types of um, tools and devices that injure humans. Uh, even if you were to say red meat, Red meat causes heart attacks. Red meat causes strokes. Um, that's not new science. And that's not much of a stretch uh, in terms of existing um, dietetic and biological science. Okay. But banning cows? No, you just don't, don't eat, don't eat the meat. Okay. Um, be careful how you drive. Obviously regulate the age at which someone can start driving. I understand that. Um, but learning how to operate a firearm and learning how to operate a vehicle um, a firearm is a lot easier to operate than a vehicle, period. I say that as a gun owner and a gun user. Uh, they're a lot easier to operate than a car. Um, and so the amount of training it takes to operate it correctly, uh, there's much more for a car. Um, and yet we casually go about how that works, right? You take a written exam, uh, the questions to which you can easily discover. This is pre-internet. You can easily discover what the questions are. Okay, and then you practice with a parent or uncle or older brother or what have you, older sister, and then you take a road test and then you passed. Here you are in premature. You're now fit to get behind a vehicle and drive 85 miles per hour in a 60 zone or 55 zone in New York, right? Um, and then crash into a bus and kill 27 people. Like, we're comfortable with that. We're comfortable as a society with that apportioning of the risk. So the analogous lens is one of the things I'd like to look at. But the other lens is the lens of history. Because when somebody says 
pick pick your you know school shooting and say this is deplorable which i agree this shouldn't have happened which i agree um we want to prevent this from happening again i actually agree but they see another crazy walking into a school and i see stalin who murdered millions of my wife's nation in ukraine and nobody being able to stop him that's what i see and that danger is paramount to me in a way that um, the risk of that is not something that I want to 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 hazard. And so um, a, a cursory review of history will show you nations that were armed and then were disarmed and then what happened to them. Um, it's just history. And so um, that is the second lens through which I look at these issues. Um, and uh, Human nature hasn't changed. The bloodiest century, as far as we know, that humanity lived through, other than the Diluvian century, was the 20th century. And so um, more people were killed then by not just government, by just three <laughs> than the centuries that, that passed heretofore, you know? Um, and each of those individuals, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, each of those individuals, uh, had promulgated a political creed that basically said individuals don't have rights and don't have meaning unless we say so. And the road to that is paved in a Western nation is paved with good intentions, like trying to improve the economy, like trying to make schools safer. Um, that is the road. And I'm not saying that it is one step from making schools safer to Stalin. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that it's the same road. And uh, I don't wish to see us go down um, that road. Certainly not before we try everything else already on the books that could affect the same type of protection, like arming officers at the school like requiring them to be trained that, hey, by the way, when you have this active situation, you got to go into the building. <laughs> you got to do something. You can't stand outside and call for backup. You're supposed to go and interpose yourself between innocence and this malevolence and die if you need to. If you're not prepared to do that, get another job. But somebody needs to have that job and somebody can have that job in every single school in America before we try to restrict private citizens' rights. Um, I mean, if you were to do the math and just look, if you looked at the firearms themselves as a proxy uh, for the people involved, and you add up the millions that are out there, put that on one side, and you just put the number of incidents on the other side, you see that there's a colossal, it's, far above 99% of the firearms are not causing any of these issues. And that's a phenomenal level of effectiveness. Um, and so, uh, and I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how automobiles stack up, you know, um, but uh, it's just interesting that um, so much of the behavior of gun owners throughout the United States is legally compliant and in ways that most people don't even notice. And yet we get such a bad rap because somebody decides to go break the law in some heinous way. And then all of a sudden, all of us are guilty. Back to your point about collective guilt, right? 
Um, it's interesting because one of the things that totalitarian states do, they categorize people, then they scapegoat them, then they eliminate them. And this is what they do. Um, and here's the uncomfortable fact, as if that wasn't. Here's the uncomfortable fact. Um, the large majority, it's always a minority where that happens. Um, not, doesn't matter how you look, it's always a minority. It's a subsection that is smaller than the majority to whom this happens. That majority that is there uh, is not always ignorant of what's going on. Um, but many of them are just silent as this goes on. And so the thing that is uncomfortable is how those societies allow this to happen on their watch and it's like, what, what recourse do you have? How does one protect oneself? Well, in our system, uh, it's difficult to do that. And it's difficult to do that because of, you know, these documents that we're discussing make it difficult to do that. And we're still operating, um, hold on, 246 years as a sovereign nation and 234 years and 10 months, whatever, uh, under this constitution, it's still going strong. Even with its issues, even with its drift, it's still going. I mean, you know how many constitutions France has had since its revolution? <clears throat> They're into their fifth republic and about to Et be J'adore la France. Évidemment, j'adore la France. Moi, j'adore la France. Mais... Cinq républiques contre yeah, yeah, yeah. une seule, you know, it's, it's five republics versus one uh, ours, you know, and ours is older. Um, and it's just, it, it, it's, it's difficult. This process is difficult, but I don't, as you pointed out, I believe way in the beginning of the podcast, I don't, I don't see uh, a better, a, a better system created by man. Um, that is still operating, is still functioning. Like the British system, which I also love, which I went to study there I did, during law school, I went to study their system. Uh, I, it was an intern within um, their system, um, political system, I mean. Um, the, the amount of power actually given to parliament is not limited, unlike here, where Congress and the president and the Supreme Court, all of their power is limited. Amendments 9 and 10 make clear, by the way, if this is not the case, here's where the power is. They did a very good job of that. And so my earlier point about the nation state and how it would be viewed now, and your point about you know democratic norms, okay, go to the same point, namely, um, those two amendments and the ideas, sorry, the rights that they are... Um, declaring, okay, and the limits on government that they are imposing on the constitutional level, um, it's just, it's almost disregarded. It's certainly um, disdained, you know, by the, the petty tyrants, not the big ones, the little ones. Um, but the notion that the American people retain authority to do certain things uh, I don't, I, I wonder what percentage of people in government actually think that versus, no, 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 I'm in charge. I'm the government. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be arrested by these people over here. And that's not, the, that's not what our system says. That's not what our system was constructed to do. And it is a sad 
mourning for humanity when we're forced to recognize that um because uh you know this this thing is is still in it's still in the, the ball is still in play the game is not over the ball is still in play and as that greatest of american presidents abraham lincoln you know once said um that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth because it can happen and it is eventually likely to happen at some point more than tyranny just going away um because that's what's been happening for you know the 5,000 reported years of of organized states that exist you know egypt china mm -hmm. and and ur right <laughs> to now <laughs> ur and mesopotamia to now um what we see is is one sort of tyranny being succeeded by another sort of tyranny until a bunch of uh actual barbarians which is a pun because they're the ones who coined the term talking about other people but if you study how civilizations were set up you see that the greeks were the barbarians and the trojans were not they were the civilized eastern right. asian civilization and here were these euros with out shaving and then the rest of these things and their and their weapons and so what they ended up constructing uh was a set of interrelated societies around a basic principle that um and at the time it was certain but uh meaning a limited number as opposed to any but um eventually the west got it right but that individuals matter individuals rights matter you know what the eighth amendment is about about human dignity mm -hmm. it's about you're not gonna crush somebody even when they're guilty. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. You're suspected of being guilty, you can't have bail, it's crazy, okay? And you are guilty, you're not gonna have cruel and unusual punishments. And they didn't mean you weren't gonna be executed. No. It wasn't about that. No. Look up being drawn and quartered. It's that crap that was not going to pardon me. It was that <laughs> type of of punishment that was not going to happen watch braveheart watch what happened to william wallace that mm -hmm. hanged drawn and quartered do you want that you want you've ever seen somebody broken on the rack you don't really want to see that you think waterboarding's bad there's a reason i brought that up in talking about the eighth amendment for the record but anyway <laughs> if waterboarding is bad you should watch somebody get racked it's not it's, i'm not saying waterboarding is is not bad i'm saying that the rack is horrendous uh, and of course you know there's obviously that, you know, Persian innovation on hanging called crucifixion. Yes. That the right. Romans discovered and said, hey, this, we like this. We like nailing you to a piece of wood until you suffocate. That's horrendous. Uh, that is what the Eighth Amendment is about. Humans have rights, they have dignity, and even when they're guilty, even when you're going to execute them, there's a way that you're going to do it that preserves their dignity. Every Which human being, every yeah. human being has a fundamental spark of humanity inside of them. And actually, we're not gonna get to the amendments of the constitution. We barely got through a few sections, but it is worthwhile for you to go out and pick up a copy of the United States constitution. Go out and read that. Even if you fundamentally disagree with the founding, if you fundamentally disagree with the founding fathers themselves, don't read what other people have written about the Constitution. Don't even read, don't even listen, don't even buy necessarily what DeRolo and I are saying about the Constitution today. 
go get a copy and read the words for yourself. It was designed to be understood by the average citizen, all 330 million of you out there. And it was written in clear, unambiguous language. Go get a copy, read the Constitution, and know what it says. I want to close today, and I want to thank DeRolo for coming back on the podcast, and he'll be back on our next episode where we'll be talking about the Federalist Papers. I want to close today with the words of Benjamin Franklin. On the last day of the convention, Franklin made a graceful speech pleading with all his colleagues, despite their objections to some parts of the Constitution, to sign it as, on the whole, probably the best that could be done by any convention of fallible human beings. A discussion followed, revealing some of the hopes and fears of the delegates as they finished their work. And I quote directly from Benjamin Franklin. Mr. President, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure I shall never approve them. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obligated by, obliged by better information, uh, or fuller consideration to change opinions even on important subjects which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise. It is therefore that the older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and to pay more respect to the judgment of others. Most men indeed, as well as most sects and religion, think themselves in possession of all truth, and that wherever others differ from them, it is so far error. Steele, a Protestant in a dedication, tells the Pope that the only difference between our churches in their opinions of, certain, of the certainty of their doctrines is the Church of Rome is infallible and the Church of England is never in the wrong. God, I love that. But though many private persons think almost as highly of their own infallibility as of that of their sect, few express it so naturally as a certain French lady who, in a dispute with her sister, said... I don't know how it happens, sister, but I meet with nobody but myself that's always in the right. And then there's a bunch of French there, which I'm not going to butcher. Franklin could do it better than me. <laughs> in these sentiments, sir, I agree to this Constitution with all its faults, if they are such. Because I think a general government necessary for us, and there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered, and believe farther that this is likely to be well administered for a course of years and can only end in despotism, as other forms have done before it, when the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic government, being incapable of any other. I doubt, too, whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better constitution, for when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly can a perfect production be expected? It therefore astonishes me, sir, to find this system approaching so near to perfection as it does, and I think it will astonish our enemies, who are waiting with confidence to hear that our councils are confounded like those of the builders of Babel, and that our states are on the point of separation only to meet hereafter for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. Thus I consent, sir, to this constitution because I expect no better, and because I am not sure that it is not the best." The opinions I have had of its errors I sacrificed to the public good. I have never whispered a syllable of them abroad. Within these walls they were born, in here they shall die. 
if mm-hmm. every one of us in returning to our constituents were to report the objections he has had to it and endeavor to gain partisans in support of them, we might prevent its being generally received and thereby lose all the salutary effects and great advantages resulting naturally in our favor among foreign nations as well as among ourselves from our real or apparent unanimity. Much of the strength and efficiency of any government in procuring and securing happiness to the people depends on opinion, on the general opinion of the goodness of the government, as well as of the wisdom and integrity of its governors. I hope, therefore, that for our own sakes, as a part of the people and for the sake of posterity, we shall act heartily and unanimously in recommending this Constitution, if approved by Congress and confirmed by the conventions, wherever our influence may extend and turn our future thoughts and endeavors to the means of having it well administered. On the whole, sir... I cannot help expressing a wish that every member of the convention who may still have objections to it would, with me on this occasion, doubt little of his own infallibility and, to make manifest our unanimity, put his name to this instrument. He then moved to the Constitution. He then moved that the Constitution be signed by the members and offered the following as a convenient form. Done in the convention by the unanimous consent of the states present the 17th of September in witness thereof we have hereto subscribed our names I think Ben Franklin would be astonished I think Alexander Hamilton would chuckle. I think Thomas Jefferson would sit very quietly and scroll through Twitter. (laughs) I think George Washington would probably want to be left alone. Finally. Finally. By the way, in case you're wondering, George Washington only said one thing during the entire convention. And then he sat down and was quiet for 99.9% of it. Proving sometimes for leaders that saying nothing is better than filling the words or filling the air with blathering words that don't mean anything. Mm. Final thoughts, Rollo, on the U.S. Constitution, our system of government, and perhaps are not entirely perfect but potentially more perfect union long may she live the irony is that we're two black guys Mm -hmm. and i think that all the founding fathers would be shocked by that i think some less so than others and Mm -hmm. uh I'm not racially focused on this podcast. I think that though things like race and gender and national origin and even fundamentally religious distinction, uh, those are material distinctions that we have to fight past in order to get to things that are higher of the hierarchy in order to lead better because they are mere surface factions, surface, creating surface partisanship that at the end of the day, if you want to accomplish a goal as a leader, it doesn't really matter. Mm. However, I will say that 
I value the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence quite highly. Uh, people in my family have fought and have bled and have died for the preservation of these documents in ways both small and large. Mm -hmm. And while I am not a person at my age who has held a gun and stood a post, I do look at what we do on this podcast as a fundamental way of giving forward to the generations that will come ahead of us, giving them the gift of what I have received from the men who put together the country that allowed the people who were enslaved, who were my relatives during that time, to eventually be free and to participate fully in the rewards of the republic they bent their wisdom to create. Not their perfection, not even their might, but their wisdom. This is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. And I want to thank you for listening. Now go out and go get yourself a copy of the Constitution. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products at, from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this Little Red book. My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And of course, pick up my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, written with Bradley Madigan. You're going to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022. And you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally, we are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube. YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience Podcast. Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people all about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience.
All right, well, that's it for me. Out. <laughs>